I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the death of one of the United States' most serious enemies, Ayman al-Zawahri, we have with us Dr. Seth Jones, who is a senior vice president at CSIS, director of our international security program, and Harold Brown chair here. Seth, welcome back. Andrew, it's great to be on. Thanks for having me. And we're both losing our tan by the second because you just got back from Maine. I just got back from Malibu and it's like, you know, it's scorching hot. Nobody wants to go outside here. So we probably should have stayed in Maine and California. Probably should have done that. Bummer. Well, anyway, let me ask you, while we were both away, Zawa, tell me how to pronounce this guy's name. Zawahri. Zawahri. Okay. Zawahri. So, so yeah, yeah. who was he and what was his role in Al-Qaeda? Well, Ayman al-Zawahri really cut his teeth in militancy in Egypt. He was a founding member of Egyptian Islamic Jihad, was arrested as part of the roundup of militants following the assassination of the Egyptian leader Anwar al-Sadat, and was eventually released from prison by the mid-1980s, went to Pakistan, including to Peshawar, and eventually linked up with Osama bin Laden, provided limited assistance to the Mujahideen. They took credit for way more than they were ever involved in, and that's where Al-Qaeda originated, the end of the Afghan war against the Soviets. And so for the next couple of decades, he played a central role, the strategic level, with bin Laden until bin Laden's death in 2011 in the strategic guidance of an organization that proceeded to conduct attacks against uh, the U.S. at the embassies in Tanzania and Kenya in 1998, the USS Cole in Yemen, 9-11, and then there were a number of uh, al-Qaeda plots after that. So Zawahri was not directly involved in most of them, but certainly played a critical role up until bin Laden's death as the number two. And then after bin Laden was selected by senior al-Qaeda leaders to be the emir of the organization, which he was until his death in 2022. So some have said that Zawahri was really the intellectual backbone behind al-Qaeda. What do you think about that? So I would say that Osama bin Laden, when he was running the organization, probably was more involved and inspiring as a kind of military leader. He carried his AK-47 around, loved to, to get his fingers dirty in the training camps of Afghanistan and even of, of Pakistan, was involved in charismatic and trying to inspire individuals. Zawahri was much more scholarly, wrote several influential texts like Knights Under the Prophet's Banner, outlined the general uh, views of why the organization should conduct jihad and establish a Sharia, Islamic law, in areas that it, it controlled. So he provided really more of the religious and indoctrination and ideology for the organization. I mean, he was probably not the most charismatic leader, certainly not compared to 
uh, Osama bin Laden. But I think he's he was influential in many of his writings for providing the ideology of an organization, was certainly heavily involved in the break with what became the Islamic State. That was a huge ideological and a leadership and command and control debate. Swahiri was very closely involved in that in 2013, 14, 15, but you know, as an inspirational individual. How did we actually get him? Well, most of the the information about how he was monitored and then the strike that killed him is still classified right now. So I think it'll take some time to become declassified. But what what we know from both President Biden's comments and then from uh, some background statements from uh, U- U.S. officials is that the U.S. government, particularly U.S. intelligence agencies, had been tracking Ayman al-Sawahri in part through human sources, following his movement from Pakistan into Afghanistan, early on Eastern Afghanistan, and then eventually his move into Kabul. And that then at that point, the U.S. from the Persian Gulf sent up MQ-9s. These are drones that would have had to fly through Pakistan airspace and then loiter over the target in Kabul, Afghanistan, and then struck it with Hellfire missiles, apparently the RX-9, which is a Hellfire missile armed with long blades aimed at killing targets with kinetic energy. And the idea there is to minimize collateral damage. So I think there were, he had been identified for several months. There were debates within the administration about when to target him and minimizing any collateral damage, any any civilian casualties as part of that. So that's essentially how how he was eventually targeted. And as with any, even when I was in the government and U.S. Special Operations, any mission like that would have required significant amounts of geospatial intelligence, human intelligence, signals intelligence. So there almost certainly would have been a wide range of all source intelligence that tracked monitored his essentially every move, including in that complex uh, before his death. So now I've heard the term over the horizon counterterrorism associated with this. Is that the case here? And, and what does that actually mean? I think some administration officials have overpromised what over the horizon means and what it can and cannot do. Uh, what it essentially means is that in some cases, the U.S. may not need boots on the ground, whether they're intelligence officials or military forces, special operations forces, for example, that conduct the action, that it can use drones like the MQ-9A or MQ-9B to fly from other locations and then to conduct strikes. The challenge is in Afghanistan right now where Zawahiri was killed, the U.S. does not have bases in any neighboring country, so it has the uh, an MQ-9 has got to fly a long way from the Persian Gulf, uh, including over Pakistan territory, it has to get overflight rights, it has to loiter around and is going to have very limited time to do that. The U.S. does not have a partner force on the ground in in Afghanistan. It's the Taliban, which, is a, which has been a friend of Al-Qaeda. And then in addition, the U.S. has essentially eliminated most of its intelligence infrastructure, including its signals intelligence or SIGINT infrastructure in Afghanistan. So what the U.S. can do with over the horizon is it can conduct an individual strike against someone or a small number of people. 
What it can't do is conduct a sustained campaign against, say, al-Qaeda or the Islamic State Khorasan province in Afghanistan without closer bases, without a partner force on the ground, and without more of an intelligence infrastructure. So this is, U.S. can do what it just did with Zawahiri's kill an individual, but not a campaign. So Seth, where does this all leave us with the future of al-Qaeda now that Zawahiri is dead? Well, Andrew, two things. It's a great question. One is probably the most likely contender, or certainly one of the most likely contenders to replace Zawahiri is Saif al as as the emir or leader of the organization. There are a few other contenders as well, including ones that are operating in Afghanistan, such as Abdul Rahman al-Maghrebi, a Moroccan national, who's also the son-in-law of Ayman al-Zawahiri. So there's the leadership succession plan and who will succeed Zawahiri. There's also the broader challenge of what to do about an Afghanistan that has, is increasingly becoming a sanctuary for terrorist groups. So we've got several hundred al-Qaeda fighters that the UN Security Council in several of its reports has said live in Afghanistan and are engaging in training at various camps. They have a close relationship, particularly with the Minister of Interior of Afghanistan, Sirajuddin Haqqani. And the Haqqanis have had longstanding relations with al-Qaeda. In addition, there is a pretty notable Islamic State Khorasan footprint in Afghanistan. They've been pretty active in conducting attacks. Then you get a range of other militant groups like the Tariqi Taliban Pakistan or Pakistan Taliban. Some of the anti-Indian groups that operate in Kashmir have a presence in Afghanistan. So I think a broader question for the US is the direction that Afghanistan is trending feels a little bit like Iraq and Syria after the US withdrawal in 2011 from Iraq over the course of 2012, 2013, 2014, both Syria and Iraq saw a buildup of militant groups without a US presence on the ground. That is a little bit like what Afghanistan feels like, although it's probably worse because in neither Iraq nor Syria did those terrorists have a state sponsor the way al-Qaeda does with the Taliban. So a lot of your and others' worst fears are really coming true that Afghanistan in wake of our withdrawal is becoming the Chateau Marmont for terrorists. That is the concern at the moment, it looks like, and U.S. intelligence officials have repeatedly said, including publicly, that they don't see evidence at the moment of external operations plots coming out of Afghanistan. So what does not look like it's the case at the moment is either al-Qaeda or the Islamic State or individuals operating in Afghanistan planning imminent attacks in Europe or the United States. I think we're probably not there yet, but it's the sanctuary and the trending in that direction that is most worrisome, which probably means it's probably not an immediate threat of an attack the way sort of the Islamic State conducted the attack in Paris in 2015. We're probably a little bit away from that, uh, but the trends aren't good. So what can we do knowing this, the trends aren't good and that you know history could very well repeat itself. There's clearly a concern 
And the U.S. national defense strategy says this pretty forthrightly, that the, the major threat to the U.S. and the pacing threat comes from the Chinese. There is also a growing threat with the Russian invasion of Ukraine from the Russians. There's Iran, which has been pretty active against U.S. forces and U.S. allies and partners in the Middle East. So there are lots of threats. And of course, you know, there are plenty of other international concerns from economic ones to, to climate change. But I think what this indicates is that the terrorism threat is not over. We do see Al-Qaeda and Islamic State-linked groups operating in Western Africa, including in the Sahel, in North Africa, in East Africa, including places like Somalia. We still see a pretty active militancy in Syria, especially in Idlib, by the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda-linked groups in Iraq, and then obviously Afghanistan. So the US, its allies and partners, the French, for example, the British, will still need to conduct some operations against terrorist groups in the near future. And just one additional issue, and we can see this with the Iranians and the Russians in particular, is they operate with a number of these types of organizations. The Russians partnered with Hezbollah in Syria. The uh, Iranians have a long-standing relationship with Shia groups operating and some Sunni groups operating uh, throughout the Middle East and Asia. And then ironically, it, with, uh, with Al-Qaeda, Two of the most significant contenders for the Zawahri job as Emir, Saiful Adel and al-Maghrebi, have both generally spent most of their time over the last 20 years in Iran. So the Iranians and the Russians are involved both in, in working with states and non-state actors. This is quite a gumbo of terrorists we're dealing with here. Yeah, it's, it sure is. A gumbo. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Once you get New Orleans in you, it never leaves, I guess. Seth, let's shift gears a little bit. You mentioned Russia. Let's talk about Russia, Ukraine for a second. You know, it's not front and center in the news, but a lot is happening. And and just yesterday, Monday of this week, August 8th, the Biden administration authorized another $1 billion grant in aid to Ukraine with some very specific and strategic weapons and equipment in that package. Can you tell me a little bit about what's going on with the package and what is happening with Russia, Ukraine? Yeah, what the US continues to do is provide a range of support, 155 millimeter ammunition and a range of other types of assistance, more for the artillery battles that we're seeing along the contact lines in Ukraine uh, to the Ukrainian government. We're not seeing some of the higher end, at least yet, platforms and systems that some have been pushing for, like uh, the attackums that can be put on HIMARS that have a range of 190 miles instead of 40, or some of the fighter aircraft that have been discussed about uh, providing them. So the the assistance is more of a status quo than a increase in the range and the sophistication. I'm not sure. I haven't seen any additional news of MQ-1Cs. These are much more sophisticated drones uh, that the Ukrainians have been asking for that have been held up right now. I haven't seen a major increase in that. It's more of kind of the status quo to help the Ukrainians fight the two major areas they're looking at right now. One is in the east in Donetsk right now, where the Russians have stalled in moving forward. And there are some indications that the Ukrainians are contesting several 
cities and towns that they had lost over the last couple of months. And the other is down in the south, in Kherson in particular, where there are indications that uh, the Ukrainians may be preparing an offensive late summer or early fall, a counterattack. I mean, it would be a reasonable area to expect because the population in that area has generally been anti-Russian. And then the Russians have moved some forces, some ground forces, uh, battalion tactical groups from the east down to the south. So those are the two main areas I think that our, most people are focused on in the ground war. And then we've also seen a little bit of movement in, in the Russians allowing grain to leave Ukraine through the Black Sea and out of the Bosporus. But is there any end in sight to this? I mean, right now, the, the two, Russia and Ukraine, seem to be staring each other down and trying to figure out what their next move is. Is there any end in sight to this? I don't see a, an end in sight in the sense that the uh, Ukrainian objectives as Zelensky has repeatedly said, are to take back territory that the Russians have seized, both since February 2022 and then obviously before that, including areas in the Donbass and then Crimea. And from a Russian perspective, they are in the process of, of annexing the territory that they have seized. So I, I just don't see any real if you were to draw a Venn diagram, any any real areas where uh, the two sides have bargaining space right now. So I think what this suggests is is a slugfest will continue some days and weeks. It'll be low level, which is what we've seen recently, and and it'll be interspersed with offensive operations and a lot of artillery and some standoff fires from maritime vessels and fixed-wing aircraft as well. So would you call this a frozen conflict or is it something different? I wouldn't call it a frozen conflict yet because I don't think it's frozen. We're still seeing movement on both sides of the contact line. The Ukrainians taking a little bit of territory here, the Russians there. So I don't think we're quite at the frozen conflict point yet. What do you think the Ukrainians' key strategy is at the moment and, and looking just a little bit down the line? I think the Ukrainians really are focused on trying to find vulnerable areas where the Russians control territory to try to take the initiative now and to try to take back some territory through a combination of conventional operations. And the HIMARS have been helpful in targeting some fixed Russian positions, as well as munitions depots and, and key logistics hubs as well as through guerrilla operations. So sabotage, subversion, assassinations behind Russian lines. So that's, I think, where the Ukrainians are trying to turn this tide. And the reason is, is, is if negotiations do start, even if they're unlikely to go anywhere or they're unlikely to proceed really past ceasefires, the bargaining strength is going to depend a lot on the situation on the battlefield. So I think that the Ukrainians really are trying to maximize their advantages. And on the other side, what, what do you see the Russians as trying to do? I think the Russians are trying to wear down Ukraine and hope that the Western partnership fractures. The US and the British have been pretty adamant to pr keep providing assistance to Ukraine. You know, It's not clear whether the Italians, the French, the Germans, and some other European countries will continue. I know when when I've talked to senior officials from Poland and the Baltic states that it's very important to them that the Russians are pushed back. 
and that pay a heavy price for this because they're frontline NATO countries. But I think the Russians are hoping that they can fracture the West. Part of it maybe as we get closer to the winter and it's cold, it's a cold winter that with either energy prices or the lack of gas coming into Europe from Russia, that that ends up being an advantage for the Russians. I think also that there's been a lot that's been talked about on Russian fatalities and casualties. Uh, so the CIA director recently noted about 15,000 Russian fatalities. My understanding is that's mostly regular forces. The number of total Russian fatalities is probably closer to 20,000. That 5,000 is a, composed of uh, Luhansk and Donetsk militias, Wagner Group, and other Russian private military companies who have died in large numbers in Ukraine. But for the Russians, it's also uh, they've got a much bigger military. So having the Ukrainians pay a, an enormous price because they've been dying and they're being wounded at incredible levels as well. And when you factor in people taken off the battlefield from injuries or captures or MIA, you're talking more like 70,000, 80,000 Russians. Yeah, exactly. Right. And probably something very close to that on the Ukrainian side as well. Yeah, seventy to 80,000 total killed or wounded. Wow. Well, Seth, watching this as closely as you do, what makes you most nervous about this conflict? Well, there are a few things that make me nervous. One is what does Vladimir Putin do if he is unable to increase his territorial control or if he starts to lose ground? So, you know, does he I, – I don't believe at this point he's likely to – actually use tactical nuclear weapons. But does he escalate the situation, at least which causes growing concern? Does he detonate an underground nuclear test? Does he forward deploy nuclear forces, additional nuclear forces in areas along the NATO border, including along Poland and the Baltic states? Does, you know, what what is the Chinese-Russian relationship look like? Do the Chinese then start to backfill Russian military equipment? and technology that the Russians need for advanced military systems. The other thing that makes me worried is to what degree do the Chinese continue to operate in the Taiwan Straits in ways that keeps the US focused on now two major theaters in Eastern Europe and, uh, and, and in the Indo-Pacific. Those are two major fronts that would tie any administration down. Seth, as always, thanks for your really important insights. Thank you very much, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 